Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Is inflation here to stay or is it temporary? Stay tuned for my interview with Kevin Muir as we hear the inflation side of the argument in the shootout at the Inflation and Deflation Corral. Kevin will shoot it out with former guests and deflationists Gary Schilling and Stephen Van Meter. But first, the law. Many U.S. homeowners face foreclosure as mortgage forbearance ends. The largest wave of loan forbearance exits is expected to end in October 2021. Close to half a million low-income homeowners in the U.S. are nearing the end of the mortgage forbearance plans that allowed them to halt loan payments during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, on September 24, 2021, the Federal Housing Finance Agency announced that effective October 1, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would continue to offer forbearance to qualified multifamily property users. However, the delinquent borrowers who own these rental properties have to provide notices to their tenants and agree not to evict them while the loan's in forbearance, and they must allow an extended notice period to evict if eviction occurs. Fed stops QE. On November 3rd, the Federal Reserve Board announced that it would begin to scale back quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve's purchase of bonds. This is generally seen as a prelude to the Fed raising interest rates in the next 6 to 12 months. If so, it's going to impact the deflation versus inflation argument in favor of inflation. Stay tuned. And renting is now cheaper than buying for most. In about half the country's largest cities, the average rents less than the average monthly mortgage payment for a starter home. Home prices are rising at double-digit growth in 90% of metro areas, so says Gay Corrington, who's the Director of Housing and Commercial Research at the National Association of Realtors. It's really the supply that's constraining home ownership, not the desire to rent. He's mad as hell, and he's not going to take it anymore. Today, as of November 1st, gas prices in Nevada, California, went over $5.29 for a gallon of premium. If this happened on Trump's watch, we would have been all over him. It's time to get on Biden and Governor Newsom and ask them how this happened and what they're going to do about it. A year ago, we were energy independent, and gas was as low in this country as $2 a gallon. What happened? And California's eviction moratorium ends, leaving tenants facing a tsunami of evictions. California may become a ground zero for a homelessness crisis as the state's eviction moratorium officially expired at the end of September. Until September 30th, state law automatically banned landlords from evicting people for unpaid rent. But tenants and landlords, listen up. Beginning in October, there's still one pandemic-related statewide eviction protection that's left. Tenants with unpaid rent can be protected from evictions if they've applied for assistance from the state of California, 
which, by the way, has over $5.2 billion in federal funds for this purpose. And the landlord had to have served an appropriate notice to the tenant for rent owing beginning April 2020 through September 2021. Tenants may have to pay as much as 25% of the rent due, depending on the amount of the grant that they get. And in a related issue, for new evictions starting after October 2021, special notice requirements are in effect. He shot the actress, but did he do it purposely? Good job on that, Austin. You got a promising career in music. They haven't ruled out criminal charges against Alec Baldwin in the tragic shooting death of actress Selena Hutchins last week. For those who missed it, Baldwin shot a live bullet instead of blanks in a gun scene on a movie set. Criminal law can be very tricky in these types of cases, allowing liability even if there was not an actual intention to commit harm. Stay tuned. They can run, but they can't hide. In October, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said he's not looking to ban cryptocurrencies, to the great relief of investors everywhere. As you likely know, the price of Bitcoin, the largest of the digital currencies, has surged to its highest level ever, over $62,000 for a Bitcoin at last look. But behind the scenes, there's a gathering fear that the government's still going to step in no matter what. After allowing the sector to grow from really nothing more than a a joke in concept to a $2 trillion financial tornado in little more than 10 years, Washington, D.C. regulators are now preparing to unleash a torrent of rules and regulations to bring crypto to heel. The Washington Post reported in October that regulators have put the industry on notice. Fed Chairman Powell indicated in his October Fed report that he wants to impose federal standards on stablecoins. Stablecoins are a type of digital asset that's exploded in recent months and typically maintains a steadier price by pegging itself to a national currency. Securities and Exchange Commissioner Gary Gensler likened stablecoins to poker chips at the casino in a Washington Post Live event, and he added that he doesn't believe cryptocurrencies have much long-term viability. In his August 3, 2021 remarks before the Aspen Security Forum, Gensler confirmed his thoughts that stablecoins are likely securities and that their issuers may be investment companies. He stressed that the SEC will apply full investor protections to the Investment Company Act and other federal securities to these types of products. Bottom line, the war is on, and governments will never let crypto kings and their investors hide under the radar. They'll root them out, they'll regulate them, and they'll force financial and regulatory compliance, or they'll likely put them out of business. Check out SLG's podcast on the future of money to get an idea where this is all heading and how digital currency will likely be worldwide soon and how it's going to be a surveillance tool to spy on us all. It's episode nine. Check it out. But this time in COVID, they understood the differences. They understood what they've done wrong last time. And so they said, no, the government has to step up. The government has to spend. And this change in attitude, whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. All you have to ask yourself is, is this going to go away? Are we going to spend more or less going forward? And so this is where I disagree with the Gary Schillings and the and the Stephen Biometra of the world because they think that they're that that the government is um, constrained, constrained like a household. So therefore, they're gonna they're gonna stop spending. They're gonna realize that there's too much debt. And I argue that what you're gonna find 
is that the government is now realized that they can spend this money into existence. You're going to see more deficits and you're going to see that they eventually this is going to create more and more inflation. In late July of this year, I interviewed Stephen Van Meter. He's a well-known financial advisor. And in August, I interviewed renowned economist A. Gary Schilling. Both are contrarians calling for near-term deflation and bond and mortgage rates to decline as low as 1% in the near future. In today's interview, I'll give you excerpts from both of those prior interviews, and then we'll present my interview with Kevin Muir, a well-known market trader and an inflationist, to get the other side of the story. Stay tuned as True Serum presents Shootout at the Inflation and Deflation Corral. Anyone following the stock, bond, or real estate market should listen carefully because backing the wrong gunfighter may turn out to be the worst decision you made in 2021 and 2022. In July of this year, Stephen Van Meter had this to say about inflation and deflation. For the full interview, go to episode 5 of the Truth Serum series. Vast consensus of the economic talking heads, they're focused on inflation and runaway inflation. You've been somewhat of a contrarian predicting lower growth and possible deflation. Why? Right now, a lot of people are looking at what's going on and seeing the year-over-year rate of the consumer price index shoot higher, and it's finally validation. For decades, we've been calling for inflation. Here it is. It's all the Fed's fault. And yes, Spencer, what I'm struggling with understanding is how do these people not understand that we completely shut down the global economy? And in the United States, we paid people money to stay at home. And in fact, for some people, they got paid more than they were earning at work. And they took that money and they cleared the shelves off of retailers. And everybody knows this because at one point we all did go to the grocery store and see aisle and aisle and aisle of empty shelves. And because people stayed home so long because of the pandemic, the supply chain is, is not running at full force. Factories aren't running full force. Mines aren't running. Things aren't coming out of the ground like they should. And yet the answer is, okay, this is secular inflation. And I think the truth is, as more people go back to work, as these unemployment benefits start to go away, that what we'll see is the deflationary forces of the monetary system come back and the negative impacts that quantitative easing has. Right now, anyone on the inflation camp is pointing at commodity prices and everyone on the deflation camp is pointing at the the much wiser bond market. And it, it makes sense because commodity prices historically are a sign of inflation, but it's really important to understand when they are and when they aren't. Because if, say, gasoline prices are rising, but I don't have the income to afford those higher prices, then they become deflationary in the sense that I now have to take spending away from other areas to afford these higher you know, food prices, energy prices, shelter prices, and that takes away from discretionary spending, which is inherently deflationary. Now, if my wages are rising and the money supply is growing fast enough, then I can afford those higher prices and they stick, and then you can possibly get sustainable inflation. But yet back in March, as you mentioned, uh, Treasury yields peaked and they signaled and said, they said, doesn't matter how high the CBI goes, this isn't going to hold. And when in doubt, always look to the bond market because it knows things long before the rest of the market figures it out. In August of this year, Gary Schilling had this to say about the likelihood of inflation and deflation in the coming months. For the full interview, 
Go to episode six of the Truth Serum series. You've accurately forecasted an extended era of financial deleveraging. You've accurately predicted financial trends before they occurred, including in June of 2012 when you predicted a 20% drop in housing prices along with the resultant global recession. The battle's now raging between those, the many who predict inflation, even runaway inflation, and the few who predict deflation in the coming months. Who wins this argument and why? Well, first of all, the, the big concern about inflation has, has abated. If you look just in the last couple of weeks, earlier there was a lot of concern that, that reopening the economy and getting labor reoriented was going to lead to a big wave of inflation. But I think it's proving to be a temporary phenomenon. Yes, there were disruptions with bottlenecks reopening the economy. Uh, a lot of employees were, were paid, 42% were paid more to stay home than they were to work with the enhanced unemployment benefits and so on. But those things are, are passing. And I think if you look at, if you look at the rally in treasury bonds, and as you know, I've been a fan of the long-term 30-year treasury bonds since the early 80s. Back then, I said we're entering a bond rally of a lifetime. The yield on the 30-year treasury was 14.6%. Now it's less than 2%. And over that time, those Treasury bonds have outperformed, outperformed the S&P 500 by six times, six times. It's been a great winner for us. Maybe I'm reflecting bias because I still think we have lower interest rates. But the point is, there's a very high correlation between inflation and, and interest rates. And the rally we've had lately uh, in Treasuries, uh, among other things, I think tells you that this inflation scare is is pretty uh, is pretty brief. Uh, and, and, and I continue to believe we're in a world of deflation. And a principal ingredient is a tremendous productive, productive capability of, of Asia, China, and now increasingly other countries like Vietnam, Thailand, Bangladesh, and of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the room eventually is India. But they're big producers, but very par- parsimonious consumers. There's a savings glut. There's more supply than demand. And when you have more supply than demand, what happens to prices? They go down. So I think that's a very strong deflationary force, among others. Now listen to my interview with Kevin Muir, which I conducted at the end of September 2021, to hear his take on why inflation, based on massive government spending, is likely the road ahead. Kevin, you're a former bank equity index derivative trader and you continue to trade for yourself and others. You're an experienced and successful trader, but you're a realist, and I can tell by your motto, which is, all I bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. You issue a newsletter called The Macro Tourist, where you take your readers on a tour across the entire financial spectrum, so you can highlight best risk and reward situations. Kevin, welcome to Truth Serum. It's great to be with you guys today. See if you can give my listeners the other side of the deflationary coin. Sure. Sounds good. Let's just step back to 1982. I'll take you to, uh, uh, you know, Spencer, you and I are a little bit older, but uh, a lot of people probably don't remember back then. And I I don't know about you, but I was definitely in my younger youth at that time. But in 1982, most people thought inflation couldn't be broken. There was all sorts of doomsdayers on, on Wall Street. The most popular fellow at the time was a was a, a fellow by the name of Kaufman, and he worked for Solomon Brothers, and he talked about how inflation was going to be with us for many, many decades to come, and there was no way you could break it. 
And uh, and then all of a sudden came Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker was a big man. He was six six, and he was this fellow that would smoke cigars in front of the the Congress as he gave his testimony. And he did what nobody thought could be done, which was break the back of inflation. And the way he did that was by raising rates and putting the economy through a severe uh, recession, almost a depression. And he did uh, he started off what ended up being the next four decades of disinflation, meaning inflation going lower and lower and lower. And by doing that, by realizing that through interest rates that they could affect the economy, that what happened was the shift focused to monetary policy. policy. We all became monetarists. And what, so they raised, raised rates, they crushed the economy. And then when the economy and inflation stopped, they lowered rates to get it going again. And subsequently, each and every time we got into a recession, we lowered rates more and more. So the first time that he did it, you know, he took rates from, let's say, 12% down to eight. And all of a sudden, everyone responded and said, look how cheap money is. I'm going to go borrow some. And they, and they did it in the economy. Whoops, there it goes again. But the next time you go into a recession, it all of a sudden it takes, instead of going down to eight, you have to go down to five. And then it gets going. And, and this goes on and on. And, and during these four decades, we continually, what's happening is that the private sector is being encouraged to create more and more debt. And this is where I completely agree with Mr. Schilling and or Dr. Schilling and uh, Stephen Von Metra that the debt is deflationary. And that is why each time you needed to go and lower interest rates to lower and lower levels to, to stimulate the economy. But what happened was eventually we hit a point where we could no longer lower interest rates to um, a level that encouraged the private sector to borrow anymore. We hit the point that is called uh, Rich, um, Richard Koo, uh, who is an economist at Nomura, he coined the ter- term a balance sheet, rece- balance sheet recession. And what that was, was the private sector no longer responded to monetary means. And this happened during the great financial crisis. And what, what the Ben Bernanke and uh, the Federal Reserve did was they lowered rates to zero. And then when that wasn't enough, they did what's called quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is the buying of bonds from the open marketplace by the Federal Reserve. And the thinking back then was that they were going to go buy the bonds, put all these dollars out into the system, and then those dollars would get um, circulated. They would get picked up and, and lent out, and then the money velocity would cause inflation. What was important to remember at this point was that at first we thought that we could control uh, the economy through monetary means by doing these extraordinary measures, these quantitative easings. And it turned out that, yes, there was a slight economic benefit, and I would argue very little, and we can talk about why there's no economic benefit, but quantitative easing did not do what the main street economists thought it was going to do. And the reason that it didn't do that was because if you think about JP Morgan, and JP Morgan would be one of the primary banks that does quantitative easing with the Federal Reserve, meaning they sell the bonds to the Federal Reserve. If they all of a sudden go and sell a billion dollars of bonds to the Federal Reserve and uh, all of a sudden they have a billion dollars of cash, are they really any more likely to lend that out? All right. So Van Meter, because he went through the same thing, he calls me, what, he, what you're describing, he calls it a money prison. He's saying, look, 
that uh, all the Fed is doing is they're taking these bonds, swapping them back and forth to these central banks so they can fill out their balance sheet, but it's not getting back in the economy, and he asserts that to be deflationary. And your yes. statement that so the I other side was – No, I completely right. agree with Stephen there. So the, the, the I don't know if it's deflationary. I would argue that it's really just a balance sheet swap, meaning they're swapping dollars for – bonds and they're just changing the nature of the Fed's balance sheet, but it's not really doing anything. I don't think it does anything. And I, at the margin, I do believe that it actually props up asset prices. And the reason I believe it props up asset prices is because the Federal Reserve is reducing duration. They're pulling duration out of the market and they're reducing the amount of investable assets that are available to investors. And when you reduce the supply of something and you keep the demand the same, the price goes up. But for the real economy, for the regular Joe, it doesn't do anything. And I'm completely in Stephen's camp there. Your point is that you think there's something eclipsing the central banks uh, loaning to commercial banks. Explain that, if you would. That's correct. So that, that is one way that money has been created. And that has been the, the major way uh, that we have focused on over the past four or five decades, because that's been the only game in town. That's really how we've done it. Well, what we've forgotten about was there's another way for dollars to be uh, created. And dollars can be created by the central, uh, the federal government spending them into existence. And so that's an important kind of distinction between where I disagree um, with Stephen and Gary is that they view the federal government uh, much like you and I. They think that there's a limit in terms of how much they can borrow. They'll talk about, oh, we're going to leave this to our grandchildren. We can't do, we can't keep spending. There's, there's a limit. This debt is deflationary. Whereas I would argue that the government is actually not constrained by financial restraints, but it's constrained by real constraints, meaning the, the, the amount of you know, inflation. That is what stops them from spending too much. I think that there has been a real change in attitude when COVID hit. And it's, it's hard to remember, but when COVID hit, there was all sorts of deflationists out there saying, okay, here it is. This is the end of it all. We have this deflationary shock. We already have a debt to GDP of 80% or 100% or whatever the number is. We're screwed. And this, this crowd was was vocal, and it was the dominant um, theory at the time. And I remember saying, well, whoa, 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 listen, there's really nothing stopping the government from filling the hole that is created from COVID. And sure enough, the government stepped up because it ended up being a crisis and did what we saw in the war. They went and actually spent and filled the hole. And they filled the hole so much that that hole became a mound and actually created inflation. And that's what we're seeing now because the government gave away so much money and, and did all these things. And they, in essence, um, pushed too much money into the system. But this time in COVID, they understood the differences. They understood what they had done wrong last time. And so they said, no, the government has to step up. The government has to spend. And this change in attitude, whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. All you have to ask yourself is, is this going to go away? Are we going to spend more or less going forward? And so this is where I disagree 
with the Gary Schillings and the and the Stephen Biometra of the world because they think that they're that that the government is um, constrained, constrained like a household. So therefore, they're gonna they're gonna stop spending. They're gonna realize that there's too much debt. And I argue that what you're gonna find is that the government is now realized that they can spend this money into existence. You're going to see more deficits and you're going to see that they eventually, this is going to create more and more inflation. Cause you, I, another thing I saw that you said you, that you think the market is way ahead of the fed and pricing an accommodative um, money policy and bonds up until uh, recently, were just saying the opposite until this week, bonds were saying they were fighting the market saying uh, low economic growth, that there's uh, weakening demand in uh, Asian economies, that uh, when everybody is going down into a what may be another recession or at least lower economic growth than you thought might, have, uh, that they were projected, no big V-shaped recovery, that the governments are going to be hard-pressed to keep taxing and spending everybody into existence. What, why is that not a, a counterpoint to what you just said? Okay, so I don't disagree uh, that that is the counterpoint for uh, the medium term. And, and, and as a strategist, as someone who writes and trades from my own account, you ha- I have to be careful about the timeframes I'm talking about things. Right now, I'm actually as bearish as I've been uh, for the past you know, two years. I, I, I believe that we have two big things working against the stock market. One of them is a monetary policy. There's been a shift at the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve up until this point had actually t- been talking about average inflation targeting, and they seem prepared to, let's just say, accommodate the fiscal spending that we saw. We see a change recently, and the attitude has changed, and all of a sudden now the Federal Reserve has seen some inflation. They're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm actually scared. So I see, I see monetary policy um, changing in terms of, yes, it's still accommodative, but that's not what sets price. What sets price is the change in the policy, and that's changing to the negative. Then I look at fiscal policy. When you think about fiscal policy, when Biden first came in, he was able to pass all sorts of things. He ran big deficits. It seemed like he wanted to be the next uh, LBJ or even uh, um, uh, what was your president in the in the 20s, that, that uh, the New Deal. Um, yeah, it, it, or... Um, and so he looked like he was going to be the most spent through presidents ever. Turns out, you know, he botched a few things. He lost some political points, let's say, with Afghanistan. Now he's not in such a strong position of power. And it looks to me like the fiscal side is also being withdrawn. So when I look at the market right now for the short run or short to medium run, it is fraught with all sorts of risk. I see both monetary and fiscal policy having the brakes applied at a point where the valuations and the uh, uh, sentiment is extremely stretched to the upside. Now, if you that's what I feel over the short run or short to medium run. Over the long run, I have no doubt that once we get some pain, once the economy rolls over, and once the stock market gets you know declines, that the not just the Fed because I don't think the Fed is 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 important as the fiscal, they're going to be back at spending and doing it again. I think okay, they've got to taste. Sorry, go ahead. We're going to stop for one second. Two things. First, you said you're president, and I want everybody to understand you're in Canada. Oh, that's, that's correct. Yes. <laughs> hey. All right. And uh, number two, you said bond bills were uh, bond bulls 
where long treasury bonds uh, based on an economic downturn will be disappointed. So are you, okay. do you believe that? You believe that long term, and do you think short term that uh, bond long bond treasury bulls will be uh, either slaughtered or they're going to be vindicated? No, I think they're going to be slaughtered. I think that that the, that um, we have made a, a switch from monetary dominance to fiscal dominance. And even though at the margin, I'm talking about um, let's say uh, an economic slump or rolling over, I still think that when you look at a bond um, position that it will be a disappointing and it's fraught with all sorts of risk. And why do I think that? So what is the 10 year yielding right now? 1.3 or something like that. They, for that position. Today, it just, to that, today, meaning on uh, September 29th, I think it was up to, uh, it got a high like 1.5. Okay. So yeah. Um, but if you think about this, the, the Fed's target for inflation is 2%. So for you to buy a bond that is yielding 1.5, you're saying, I don't think the Fed can hit their target. And I think that they're going to average less. And even if they average 50 points less, your return in real terms will be zero. Zero. Like there's zero, uh, meaning after inflation. So uh, this, this idea that you go and rush to bonds it's, we've had 40 years of bond rates going continually lower and lower and lower and lower. And there's been so many people that have made fortunes doing this. And, and the go-to trade for most macro traders is to go buy bonds when the stock market gets in trouble. You go look at Paul Tudor Jones when 1987, when he called that crash, he made all sorts of money on the short side of the stock market, but he also made all sorts of money on the long side of the bond market. And it, Stanley Druckenmiller talks about that as well. And that has been the go-to trade. Now, if I am correct, and we have a situation where inflation is much more real, much more prevalent, and we're not going to go down, then really, how do you expect bonds, like who is going to be buying them? Who would want to buy a bond with inflation running three, four, five percent, and, oh, and well, I think talk, that that's a good question. So let me let yeah. me give you a little give and take here. All right, so I so let's say, and again, we're talking deflation or deflation is because Schilling thinks you could hit one percent on both the mortgage bonds and the treasury bonds. He thinks it's the end of the greatest bond rally ever, but but there's still a leg down. And his his response to you would be that uh, you're gonna have weakening economies, especially Asian economies. You're pushing on a string. You have higher unemployment here, so that therefore, yes, one or two percent on a bond is ridiculous if you think there's going to be inflation. But if it really is not going to be inflation that is ongoing, it's transitory. That you're going to see another bout of deflation. Why isn't that a possibility as well, short term? Oh, so I, I think it's always a possibility. A good trader never says never. So that's the first thing. I just look at the political um, environment. And I, and I see a complete change in attitude in terms of deficits and in terms of willingness to spend. If you think back to the great financial crisis, one of the, the books at the time that was so popular was This Time is Different by Reinhardt and Rogoff. And, and what it did was it told you how if a, an economy got to 100% of debt to GDP, you were going to have a crisis. And everyone believed this. So therefore, everyone was trying to cut it back. Well, this time, look, we cruised right through that, no crisis. Japan's running 250% debt to GDP, 
and we haven't had any crisis. And I'll give you just kind of the one of my final little uh, games that I like to, not games, but th- thought process in terms of how the world might not be exactly how these traditional economists think about it. If you think about the Bank of Japan, Bank of Japan owns 125% of GDP in bonds. And the government of Japan is short, meaning they've issued 250% of GDP in bonds. So everyone says, oh my goodness, look at Japan. They're going to leave all this debt to their children. It's just, it's terrible. It's awful. This is a disaster. And I say, well, listen, the government, which is the, the Bank of Japan, owns half of that debt. And I say, if you went overnight, if they just went and decided to just take the long and take the short and flatten it, that nothing would change in the real economy. And then once you say that, you go, well, wait, if that happens, then the government could spend another 125% to GDP or whatever it is. And isn't that scary? Because then all of a sudden the governments can spend whatever they want to spend. And I would say they always could spend whatever they wanted to spend. Their only real constraint is inflation. And that is where I differ. But what about default? I mean, if they're never going to pay that debt back, the Bank of Japan has been in a deflationary cycle for many years. Let's assume that that either Italy, Japan, wherever, they they default on the debt. Isn't that going to cause, you saw uh, China, that I I can't think of the real estate development. uh, The Evergrande. No, so that's different because that's, that's that's a private entity. Private entities can default on debt. Currency users uh, can default on debt. Currency issuers, in essence, can't. They can always create it out of thin air. And then once you say that, well, geez, that's, that's crazy because like, that means that they can create it out of thin air, that they can, make, uh, what, they can pay for whatever they have to pay for. And isn't that going to be inflationary? And I say, yes, it is inflationary. We can do pretty much what we want until people get to the point where they don't accept it. And many people over many countries are scurrying around looking to get out of the U.S., reserve currency trap. Isn't that part of the reason we can run these deficits because people accept the dollar as the gold standard? Okay, but the but Japan is not the reserve currency and we have and they have twice as much as the US. You don't need to be the reserve currency. You just need to have debt issued in your own currency. It doesn't matter if you're the reserve currency. And yes, there is a certain amount that the US because they're the reserve currency that the there are some issue issues with being the reserve currency because it ends up being your currency ends up being the, the, the currency that's used in global trade. And therefore that you have some, uh, I wouldn't call them responsibilities, but you have some unique situations. But the reality is that Japan has lower interest rates than the US. They have a bigger debt to GDP than the US and they're not the reserve currency. So it's obvious that, that the reason that the US is able to have these debts is not because they're res- the reserve currency. It's it's because they're a currency issuer in a in a modern in you know in a modern world. The one thing that that sh- people should be aware of is that we've had this kind of realization about that things don't work exactly how we think they work. And you might hate it. Listen, there's a lot of people that'll hear this and they'll hate it and they'll think that's terrible. It's immoral. We're leaving these debt to the grandchildren, and that's fine. You you make sure you go vote the way you want to vote. But when it comes to setting up your portfolio, ask if who's going to end up, which politicians are going to end up winning. And when I look over, yeah, um, like five or 10 years from now, 
I look at the AOCs and all these new people that are willing to go and experiment with MMT and experiment with big deficits and doing this. And to me, it just has inflation, inflation, inflation written all over it. And so I'm a big believer in actually going down and learning about MMT. And I, I, have, I have found if you go look and study, you'll realize that they've actually explained more about how the real economy works. And they, I think they understand a modern monetary system much better. And the reason that a lot of there's problems is that we used to be on the gold standard. And so we wrote all these textbooks, all these economic textbooks based upon the gold standard. And then we went off the gold standard and we never changed our textbooks. But the one thing that I do believe that is where I differ from the MMT folks, the MMT folks tell me, oh, no, there's no way uh, we're going to get inflation out of control because we can always just tax more. Because ultimately, they believe that but by taxing or reducing, by running fiscal deficit surpluses, moving the, the fiscal needle is how you create or, de- or uh, reduce inflation. And they say, we'll just tax more when we need to, to, to stop inflation, at which point I call BS. And I think that human beings are, are human beings that once we get something, we're going to abuse it. I think we've abused monetarism, and all you have to do is look at Europe with their minus 50 basis points of interest rates, meaning negative 50 basis points. And I say, well, there you go. They took, they took monetarism and they, they, they bastardized it to a point where it's just, you know, not, Milton Friedman would be shaking his head, you know, at the, at the craziness there. And so I look at this, and to me, COVID was the equivalent of the 1981 uh, Volcker moment in reverse. We had four decades of disinflation after Volcker. I think we're going to look back and that this COVID moment, we'll see that this was the start of big deficits and bigger inflation. And it has ramifications for everyone's portfolios. And one of them being that bonds that used to be the stabilizer, the ballast to your portfolio, the the great trade that you had on against your equities, it's going to, instead of it being a ballast, I think it's going to be an anchor that drags down your portfolio. Do you think America is going to win the trade war with China? And if so, why? I don't know if there's going to be any real winners in it, but I do believe that what you're going to see is increasing um, reshoring back to America, because one thing that also that COVID is as exposed is the fact that we were much too dependent on just-in-time inventory and things from China. And let's just look at semiconductors, for example. We can't find ourselves. I, I would argue that they're an item of national importance and that you need to have all those things back. And so I think we're going to see more of those things back, which, by the way, is also inflationary. If you think about the trends of the last 40 years, one of them has been the huge supply of labor that has been unleashed on the world. One, when we got the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain came down, and that was a whole bunch of workers that came into the, into the global economy. And then even more importantly was when China was admitted into the WTO. And so what you've had is ever since then, probably for the last two decades, labor has had no negotiating power, zero and that has been part of the reason that inflation has been kept down. And I think that if you kind of think about the, the, what effect those, that, that those um, let's call it globalization, has had, it's meant lower interest rates and lower uh, inflation. And I think that 
deglobalization, which is what we're about to experience, and it's going to continue and increased, let's call it trade wars, it's going to be the opposite. We're going to see increased inflation and increased interest rates. Okay, good. Um, what's the best risk-reward situation you currently identify for investors? Oh, I, I, I would have to say energy. And I look at energy, and part of the reason that it is such an attractive risk-reward is because nobody wants to own it. Uh, you're in California, and... Uh, a wonderful, wonderful state that, that we love so much. But if you look at what your uh, pension funds and your endowments are doing, they're all getting rid of uh, fossil fuel uh, companies. And the reason they're doing that is because they're trying to encourage the switch to renewable energies, which is a great goal. And I, listen, I, I think it's great. I think pollution is terrible. I think that we should do everything we can. But when you think about the consequences of their actions and through ESG and also the government's uh, policies were in essence starving, uh, starving fossil fuel companies of money needed to expand their supplies. Cause don't forget, they're always, they're always reducing, like they're using up reserves and then they have to go find more. And it's, it's politically unfeasible for them to now go look and do anymore. I saw that the International Energy Association said that there will be no new projects starting in 2022. Zero, none. They're like, they're just none. And this is, this is all the major companies are on this. If you take something and you take away the supply without changing the demand, then what you're going to find is that it's increases the price of something. And I kind of like liken it to the war on drugs. If, when the war on drugs, if you go and all of a sudden take out all the drug dealers and yet the demand's the same, that all you've done is change the price of the drugs, right? Because there's still as many people using the drugs. The reality is that if you don't change the demand and then you do everything you can to, to curtail supply, you're going to find the price of it going up. So a little bit of color to what you're saying. I, I take a two-mile ride down the road to fill up my tank of gas. 470, 490 for a gallon of gas right now. Yeah. And, and, and until people like, obviously I, I, I was kind of actually confused when the president got mad and said that Saudi, Saudi Arabia should pump more oil. Cause I thought that they were smart enough to realize that if you want to change the demand, then you have to change the price. So I thought it was actually a, a, a I thought that that was the goal of this was to get it higher so that people would start stop using it. I thought you would realize that if you pull away the supply of something without changing the demand and you're going to have higher prices. So I thought that they were smart enough to do it, but obviously they're not. Um, I don't think they've thought this through. Energy short term, energy long term, energy all term. Listen, eventually we're going to we're going to get off fossil fuels and and. and I'll leave it from a moral judgment about whether we should or not. Um, but short and medium and even like pseudo long term, I think that's a buy. I think it's like the tobacco stocks in the 1990s. No endowment, no pension fund could own tobacco stocks. And yet they ended up being one of the greatest investments that's ever 
been in terms of how they've consistently just pumped out money? Right. One guest I had on, uh, I asked him, what, what do you, does he think one of the most transformative technologies will be in the near future? His response was automated driving, which is one way to get at that without all the pain that usually is associated with less demand, right? The UK has got a goal to turn their entire fleet of cars electric by 2030. And then they figured out, the analysts figured out how much of the world's like cobalt, copper, and nickel this was going to use if they did this. And it was something like 20% of the world's copper, 50% of the world's nickel, and 140% of the world's cobalt. And that's not even talking about all the nasty um, kind of uh, rare earths that we need that, you know, that are getting mined in Africa. There is, there is a cost to everything. And I think we're underestimating the, that we think that this is so green to move all to electricity. And we're going too fast. Um, and I, I, anyways, I just think that we're going to look back and we're going we're gonna to say, the reality is that we needed more oil, more energy, and by starving the company so quickly of capital, all we did was ensure there's higher price. I think we're in at China, we're at the point where it's going to explode higher. And yes, they are trying to mitigate it with more uh, electric cars because really they're the ones with the real problem with oil because they are they don't produce nearly enough. United States is self-sufficient. Canada, we're exporters as well. So we're, 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 we don't have a problem there. China has a huge problem. They don't want this. They, so they're going to do this. Having said that, their energy use, their demand is going to explode. So I think that not only have the kind of, uh, let's call them oil bears, uh, under, uh, you know, underestimated how much pain their supply disruption is going to cost. I think they're underestimating how much demand is going to increase from parts of the world that we're not, that they're not thinking about. So okay. I look at One this more. into, yeah, sorry. Anyways, I think energy, uh, you buy, you forget about it. You, you, you buy good uh, companies with good assets, long-term assets. And, and you just, I think they're going to be like tobacco stocks. You're going to wake up uh, kind of 20 years from now. And they're going to be some of the best performers around. Very good. All right, one last question transition, then I'm going to ask uh, you to tell uh, my listeners how they can get a hold of you. Uh, digital currency, is that going to be uh, replacing paper money in the next year to three years? And if so, uh, beyond the efficiencies of digital currency, is there a great, great chance of overreach by either the governments or the sovereigns that issue them? <laughs> That's a great question. So, Spencer, I, I am a notorious um, or in, 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 in infamous crypto bear. And um, I, 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 I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble, especially, uh, you know, in California with all these tech fellows that are tech, tech people that are folks that are going to think that I'm a, a Neanderthal. And I'm just going to say to me, crypto seems like a, 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 a solution in search of is in search of a problem. I think that if you're a Chinese person trying to get money out of China or Iran, or you want to do something illegal, um, that it's it's very attractive, but that otherwise the the use case is not as exciting as everyone makes it out to be. Now, having said that, I I, I they're gonna listen. They're gonna call me Neanderthal. I'll tell you just very quickly my my Bitcoin story. My Bitcoin. I had a kid that was sitting beside me that was my programmer. He told me about Bitcoin at five bucks. $5, $5. 
And I, he told me, explained it all to me. I told him that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And don't talk to me about it again. A month later, he says, you know, that thing that you told me was so stupid and not talk about. It? Well, it's 50. And at that point, at least I was smart enough to say, if it's 50, it could be 500. It could be 5,000. I never expected it to be 50,000. So at that point, I couldn't bring myself to buy any, but I did start to mine it. And I actually, we started, we bought like butterfly machines and we did mining. And I actually have a background where I did interlisted ARB. So we were ARBing between exchanges and we made good money. And this was, you know, obviously the first run when very few, few people did it. The thing went to 2000 or whatever, and then it went back to 200. And I thought, okay, great. That's it. Uh, it was a great little run. I, we made some money. It's terrific. And now that bubbles over and I never, ever expected it to be here and doing this. Um, but I, I just don't think that it's going to be something that, uh, I think it's a speculative tool. And here's what I will say. I don't want to be long an asset that competes against, um, or, or sorry, that's not in a government's best interest. And ultimately, I think that it is not in the government's best interest. Uh, and I think you've already seen it in China. I, I was actually surprised it took them so long. I suspect that it'll, con it'll continue to get clamped down. Because if you think about China, China has a closed uh, a, a capital account. You can't get money in and out of China. And the whole idea about Bitcoin is that you can get money in and out. So therefore, they had to close it. And I look at the U.S. and I, I, I think it'll be the same thing in terms of Michael Saylor from um, a MicroStrategy was on a show the other day. And he was openly bragging about that the government couldn't tax him on his uh money because he was quote unquote just going to lose the key if they tried to tax him on it so to me i i, I just don't want to be long an asset that's that's in the government not in the government's best interest and i think that they're okay let me, let me get on that one i love the story you're the, uh, that you're a minor i love that <laughs> um but the, the other side let, let's let's take because the distinction is lost on a lot of people but I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're just the marquee names, but the, the background tech, the uh, distributive ledger and the blockchain, that seems like it's here to stay. And again, a lot of people are saying that the governments, rather than just say, you know, we can't control it, therefore we're going to outlaw it, they're going to use it in ways that will rob you of your privacy and, and be able to monitor your transactions like never before. Why isn't that the ultimate destination of the technology not not necessarily the marquee names like bitcoin well it could be and that you know that was always the out of of, of smart people that didn't want to say they didn't like bitcoin they say i don't like bitcoin but i love the technology and then they could kind of seem like they were hip and happening i, I just the, the whole distributed network like what network have you had a trouble with like the visa is not a distributed network and yet i've never had a trouble with the visa network I, I just don't I just don't see why there's this rush to be uh, decentralized. And I, I, I like I get it that they don't want it because they think the government's printing lots of dollars and they think that hyperinflation is going to come and they want to be able to have a, another system. And, and I, listen, I, I, I hear all the arguments. It just doesn't seem to me that it's the government needs to do those things. I just don't see it as, as a need. Yes, technology is wonderful and it's actually very interesting. Uh, but I, again, I just think it's a, it's a problem and in, in, like a, a solution in search of a problem.
Great. Last question on this one, and then uh, I'm done. You've been patient with me. Is uh, so Bitcoin, in your opinion, the uh, latest tulip mania? Yeah, hundred percent. I'll tell you this, uh, Spencer. I I collect uh, very optimistic, outlandish forecasts by all the Bitcoiners, and I'm either going to have the greatest database of of, of the craziest uh, bubble that we've ever experienced. Or I'm going to be a fool and have all sorts of good calls and all these people there. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, that's what makes a market. And I always joke with the Bitcoiners and say, you don't want me to turn bullish because when I turn bullish, you know the top is going to be in. And that will be the final thing. And because if you remember, um, it was uh, Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton was smart enough to get in on the South Sea bubble early. I can't remember the numbers, but let's just say he bought it for 10 sold it for 20, watched it go to 100, and his friends making all these money, you know, he couldn't help himself. He bought it at 120 and eventually bankrupted himself because he bought it all the way down. That's so green. there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you've been patient. I've enjoyed talking to you. Where can my listeners either follow you or get in touch with you if you want them to? Sure. Um, you go check out my um, letter at themacrotourist.com. And if you are interested in uh, getting some samples, just send me an email, Kevin at the Macro Tourist. I'm more than happy to kind of shoot off some recent samples. Spencer, it's been a lot of fun getting to know you. I really appreciate this. Uh, as I say, I am uh, a big fan of your wonderful state. I hear I live in Toronto and most of the people from the East Coast, I'll go down to Florida. Not our family. We're always going down to California. We we love it there. And uh, my if my wife always says, if I have to live in the states, that I'm going to California. Very good. If you're ever down in my neck of the woods, Northern Cal, tell me when you're going to be here. I'll take you out for lunch, and uh, we can talk about Bitcoin. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. You've heard both sides of the shootout at the inflation-deflation corral. Now's the time for you to make up your own mind. The vast crowd consensus is that we're headed for inflation, probably runaway inflation. However, Schilling, a noted deflationist, has had the best of this argument for almost 20 years, and noted financial advisor Van Meter has been right on lowering interest rates for most of this year. Both gunfighters stand tall in their predictions, while Muir and most mainstream economists stand ready to take them on. The impact of either inflation or deflation at higher or lower rates on both the stock and bond market and on real estate is going to be profound. Backing the right gunfighter is likely the most important financial decision you'll make in the next few years. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.